Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Let us pray. O word of God incarnate, O wisdom from on high, O truth unchanged, unchanging, O light of our dark sky, we praise thee for the radiance that from the hallowed page a lantern to our footsteps shines on from age to age. As you know, we're continuing in a series of Sunday morning services in which we are considering various aspects of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven as Matthew tends to refer to it out of deference to his many Jewish readers who would have been reluctant to name the name of God. Now the kingdom of God or of heaven is very prominent in Matthew's gospel. This gospel is sometimes referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. Way back in the very first verse of chapter 1, Jesus is introduced to us as the son of David, the son of King David, great David's greater son. In chapter 2 and verse 2, the magi ask the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? In chapter 3, first John the Baptist, and then Jesus himself introduced his ministry by saying, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In chapter 5, with the uh, Beatitudes, the first and the last Beatitude, pronounce a blessing, first of all, on the poor in spirit, and to those who are persecuted. And the blessing is, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. We are taught to pray in Matthew chapter 6, your kingdom come. And we are taught to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. In chapter 13, Jesus taught the parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this, like this, and like this. In chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter that he will give him the the keys of the kingdom. And then he speaks of himself as son of man, as coming in his kingdom. In chapter 19, Jesus welcomes little children, declaring that the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then in chapter 21, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem fulfills the words of the prophet, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Oh yes, the theme of God's kingdom is very prominent in Matthew's gospel. But what about chapter 27? The account of the crucifixion. What's happening to the kingdom there as the king dies? Please, would you turn with me? I think it's particularly important this morning that I ask you to open up a Bible and have Matthew 27 in front of you because I will be, I have in mind uh, the whole of this passage, Matthew 27, from verse 11 onwards, right through to the end of the chapter. 
um, and we'll be referring to some uh, uh, parts of that passage that we weren't able to fit into either of our two readings. So it's Matthew 27 from verse 11 onwards, page 998 and 99 and 1000 of the church Bibles. It seems to be just a huge anticlimax, does it not? As these people said about executing the king and demolishing his kingdom. I want you to look with me at the, at the sledgehammer blows that are aimed at this fragile kingdom. There is a hammer blow of political expediency. Pilate is representative of one of the most advanced legal systems the world has ever seen. Still today, a number of nations, including Scotland, base their legal system on Roman law. But at this point, Roman law, as Pilate executes it, is helpless. He fudges it. Knowing that Jesus has done no wrong, verse 23, he nevertheless hands him over to his accusers. Verse 26, the hammer blow of political expediency, of doing the pragmatic thing rather than the principled thing. O king, where is your kingdom now? And then secondly, there's the hammer blow of mob rule. And what a frightening uh, instance of mob rule we have just in that poor, troubled nation of Egypt just right now. That's been so often the case. I don't know how many of this crowd, uh, of, of, of the people in this crowd, on Good Friday, screaming, crucify him, in verse 22, had been in the Palm Sunday crowd singing, Hosanna. Maybe they were not exactly the same people. What I do know is that public opinion is a fickle thing and has quickly turned from adulation to hatred in less than one week. The hammer blow of mob rule. O king, where is your kingdom now? Then thirdly, there's the hammer blow aimed at the kingdom of brutalizing force. In verse 27 and following, these crack soldiers uh, meant to protect and guard the governor mock him, mock Jesus as king. They beat him up and they strip him naked. Yes. Take a bunch of men, dress them up in a uniform, train them with discipline and then leave them to their own devices to have fun and they can do some terrible things. The horror, the pain, the indignity of it all. Jesus was probably crucified naked. The hammer blow of brutalizing force. O king, where is your kingdom now? Then fourthly, the hammer blow of desertion by friends. In many kinds of trouble and anxiety and pain, if we can rely on our friends, we can cope. It helps so much. But where are Jesus' friends? Already denied by Peter and betrayed by Jesus. Now no one is left. 
even to help him carry his own cross. In verse 32, it's stranger is forced to do that. It's just the women, verse 55, who watch from a distance, appalled, waiting for an opportunity to give him at least a decent burial. The hammer blow of desertion by friends. O king, where is your kingdom now? Five, the hammer blow of religious bigotry and hatred, verse 41. In verse 41, you see there a full listing of Jewish leaders set against good Jesus. And that full listing emphasizes the total rejection of this man by official Judaism. The hammer blow of religious bigotry and hatred. O king, where is your kingdom now? And then sixthly, the hammer blow of divine rejection. He cries out in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the king dies. And so, as far as we can tell, the kingdom collapses in utter ruins. But wait. As earth does its worst to the king, heaven begins to reply. Verse 45, the sky is growing darker and darker. And we think that just as the light of a strange shone, a, a strange star shone over Bethlehem to herald this man's birth as a baby, so a contrasting darkness falls over Calvary at the time of his death. And then verse 51, the great curtain in the temple is ripped from top to bottom. That barrier that had shut men and women out of the presence of God has been torn apart, ripped down, And then, strangest of all, perhaps, also in verse 51, the ground underneath their feet is shaking, but this earthquake is bringing not death, but life out of death. Is this not the spookiest, the strangest miracle in the entire Bible? Because nearby, some of the tombs are breaking open, And before long, the bodies of holy men and women inside them are going to be walking and talking again. At the very moment of Christ's death, life, resurrection life, was beginning to break forth. And so as earth does its worst to the Son of God, heaven replies saying, this is not at all what it seems. God was not standing by, silent and motionless. God was in it all along. In fact, you know, this whole chapter, uh, this whole chapter is dripping with the irony of things being not at all 
what they seem. Come with me as I give you quickly six instances of things not being what they appear. Number one, there's the irony of who is actually on trial here. Have you noticed Jesus says and does virtually nothing in this chapter? He refuses even to defend himself, verse 12. Because after all, it's not really Jesus at all who is on trial, but Pilate, the Jewish leaders, the crowd, and yes, we ourselves. Were we there when they crucified the Lord? Yes, we were. Who would say that we would not have done differently had we not been in their place? It's the irony of who is on trial here. Then secondly, the irony of this choice between Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rebel, and Jesus Christ, the innocent man, in verse 17. The innocent man, Jesus, takes the place of the guilty Barabbas, giving us an instance, a graphic instance of what the Bible, New Testament writers, will teach us as substitution. In my place, condemned he stood. An area that's made even more notable, I don't normally preach from um, speculation, I like to preach from conviction, but one small piece of speculation here coming up. Some of the oldest manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel give Barabbas his full name. And his full name was Jesus Barabbas. And so the question from Pilate then becomes, which of these two men do you want me to release? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Is underlying that substitutionary act. The irony of this choice between Barabbas, the real criminal, and Jesus Christ, the innocent one. Then thirdly, the irony that everyone here speaks far more truly than they realize. Do you see in verse 37 and following the exalted names and titles that fall from their lips in mockery and as insults? King of the Jews, temple builder, son of God, king of Israel. And they're all true. Matthew knows they're all true. We know they're true. The irony that everyone here is speaking far more truly than they realize. That accusation above the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Was true. The irony that everyone speaks far far more fully than they realize. And then fourthly, the irony that although the hearts of his fellow Jews remained rock hard, the hearts of Gentiles are beginning to melt. It's a Gentile woman, Pilate's wife, who having received a dream, I believe the dream was from God, then goes to warn her husband to have nothing to do with that innocent man Verse 19. And it's um, right towards the end of this passage, a Gentile soldier who in verse 54 confesses, surely he was the son of God. So you see that irony, that although the hearts of his fellow Jews remain 
rock hard, the hearts of Gentiles are beginning to melt. Fifthly, the irony that Jesus is even more of a king than he is accused of being. He is rejected time and time again in so many ways as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, but he will soon turn out to be king of heaven and of earth. Just turn forward to the end of chapter 28. After the resurrection, sending his disciples out, he says, all authority, all kingly authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, he says to them. The irony that Jesus is even more of a king than he is accused of being. And then sixthly, the irony that this was the plan all along. This was no tragic accident at all. Back in chapter 16 and verse 21 we read, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, note that word must, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must, notice that word must, he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, of course, they didn't notice, they forgot about it, or couldn't believe that on the third day be raised to life until it happened. They certainly weren't expecting it to happen, but it was the plan all along. I maintain, therefore, that despite all appearances to the contrary, the kingdom of God was never more alive than when its king died. For this is precisely the way things are and are meant to be in the kingdom of God. Good Bishop Ryle put it like this. Our Lord came to carry a cross and not to wear a crown. He came not to live a life of honour, ease and magnificence, but to die a shameful and dishonoured death. The kingdom he came to set up was to begin with a crucifixion and not with a coronation. Its glory was to take its rise, not from victories won by the, won by the sword or, uh, and from accumulated treasures of gold and silver, but from the death of its king. That's the way things are in the kingdom of God. And that's the way things must be, ladies and gentlemen, for the subjects of that kingdom. I'm moving now, in case you're wondering, towards my conclusion. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20 following, we are told that the mother of James and John approached Jesus with her two sons, asking that they might be given the two most important jobs in his kingdom. Um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, please, and uh, Foreign Secretary. Well, when the other disciples hear of this, they are furious. Not because they think James and John and their mother have been presumptuous, but because they want the best jobs for themselves, I should suppose. So Jesus calls them all together and explains how it must be. That they must be like the Son of Man, who did not come to, serve, uh, to, uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He didn't come to get, he came to give. He didn't give as little as possible, but he gave as much as was needed. He didn't give grudgingly, but he gave willingly. He didn't make a hopeful start and then give up. He saw his task through right to the end. He didn't look for the approval of men. He looked for the approval of his heavenly father. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. The meekness is there for all to see. But now, I hope and pray we can see the majesty of the cross as well. For this is our God, the servant king, who calls us now to follow him and give our lives as a daily offering of worship to this, our servant king.